this is Uniting Nations. I'm Stephanie Van Hook from the Meta Center for Nonviolence, and I co-host the show with my colleague Anna Aikeda from Soka Gakkai International. On this episode, I speak with Ramu Damodaran, who's the first chief of the United Nations Academic Impact Initiative. So tell us about the United Nations Academic Impact Initiative. You are the first chief officer of this initiative? We began with the premise that the United Nations is an organization for peace. And peace is by definition nonviolence. Once you have that peace, once you have that nonviolence, how do you take it a step further and reap from it the material, social, and economic rewards that every citizen can accept. And that is where the academic impact comes in. We had a set of 10 principles which govern the academic impact when we launched it in 2010. And what is really extraordinary is that virtually every one of those 10 principles found reflection and echo five years later in what we today call the Sustainable Development Goals. Thanks to the Sustainable Development Goals, you now have what I would call a double extended contract, a contract between governments and their peoples, which is internationally acknowledged, and a contract between governments of each nation with governments of other nations and the community of governments as a whole that constitute the United Nations. I think in many ways, the impetus for that came from the academic impact. Look at uh, the Nobel Prizes that were awarded. The Nobel Prize for Chemistry went to the evolution, if you will, of quantum dots, which enables surgeons to address tumor tissue. The Nobel Prize for Physics went to the discovery of something called attosecond pulses, attoseconds being the most minute fragment of a second that you can imagine, which enables medical diagnostics through the identification of molecules. The Nobel Prize for Medicine itself went for the discovery which enabled effective mRNA vaccines during COVID. So you have these three apex awards, if you will, to scholars and researchers, and you will not immediately make that connection But ultimately, what is the United Nations about? It's about the dignity and worth of the human person. And you have a human person who is afflicted by a tumor, or if you have a human person who is in danger of contracting COVID, or if you have a human person whose medical diagnosis is infirm or incomplete, then you've compromised that dignity. And research like this helps make that possible. So that's at one level, the the apex level, if you will. But even if you come down to specific institutions who are members of the academic impact, just a few weeks ago, I was in Japan and I was at the Kobe University of Design where I learned about a woman student in that university who had designed a motor vehicle entirely geared to young mothers. In other words, there was a place 
in that vehicle for the baby to rest comfortably. There was space for the feeding bottle for the baby. And all this, while in no way inhibiting the driver, the mother's sense of vision or ability to navigate the vehicle. In March, I was again fortunate to be in Japan at the J.F. Auburn University in Tokyo. And I learned about the work that that university is doing on small and medium enterprises in Japan. And in particular, it's tackling of social issues where it's working with the University of Eastern Finland and the University of Rotterdam. Think of that conglomerate, if you will. Three universities working together in the cause of industry at the most functional level. The same university, Auburn University, has also dealt with the issue of women in business enterprises in Japan. People are no longer afraid to identify what they think works for them and the people who make that possible. And universities are in that lead. Another university with which I have the fortune to be familiar is the Hong Kong Global University in Korea. Just a few months ago, they arranged a program on data sciences for students in Cambodia. They had 100 spaces for this course. And by the time it was announced, they had 300 applicants. And you can again think of that, a society or a student population, which is so tentative on one of the most vital elements of the 21st century, data sciences and its application in virtually every area of human and commercial endeavor. So all this is happening. And as uh, a couple of weeks ago, United Nations Academic Impact and UNESCO brought, brought out a publication on higher education and sustainability and the responsibility of higher education institutions. And it ended with a refrain. If not higher educational institutions, then who? If not now, then when? And we may have heard that phrase before, but I think it is compelling because suddenly after just about 15 years, we really have a movement of minds that allows the United Nations to sail ahead, secure with its moorings of fact, of knowledge and possibility. Those are wonderful examples. Thank you for sharing them. I'm also concerned about the way that the institutions of higher education promote militarism across the world as well. At academic universities, you have uh, weapons labs and research that goes into war strategy and so forth. And as our concern is with the dignity of the human person and specifically with uh, nonviolence and ending war, how do you think that this academic impact initiative can help to move institutions of higher education away from participation in militarism towards something that more like global peace? You know, Stephanie, there's a wonderful phrase which was used by the president of uh, Sokogakai, Daisaku Ikeda, at the time of the meeting of the G7 in Hiroshima earlier this year. He said, what we need is a prescription of hope. And he was using it in the specific context of what is going on in Ukraine right now. 
And he elaborated upon this by saying, we need that prescription of hope and that prescription must be administered to the political leaders who can make that hope possible for their discussions and their conversations. But in attendance in those negotiations, if not actually participating in them, but available for their expertise and their wisdom should be physicians and educators. And that struck me because if you are going to bring in educators into the room with political leaders, where they begin to negotiate and work on the great issues of peace and war that you refer to, then you not only add a new dimension, but you also allow the educators and certainly the, the physicians to take back with them a sense of what used to be called real politics, the way politics is fashioned and the way it happens. That to my mind is one aspect. The second aspect really is what I would call academic diplomacy. It's heartening to see that scholars of many countries who may be politically, ideologically, and perhaps even militarily apart are working together because they have a common stake in the knowledge that they're trying to further. So yes, I, I don't think we can be completely idealistic and rule out institutions of higher education contributing to the means and the sufferances of conflict and war. But what we can do is to empower them with a political sense of the possible for peace. I was at the United Nations this morning and been going into the United Nations every day for virtually 30 years. Today was the day that I just went in to, to meet a couple of friends. And when I came out, I paused at the knotted gun statue, which many of you may have seen. And it had a caption, which I hadn't noticed earlier, about it being a tribute to nonviolence and to John Lennon. John Lennon, in a double-edged way, one, because he died from an act of violence, and because he is remembered so poignantly and so affectionately as the creator of the song, Imagine, which spoke of a world without violence. And when I saw that, the way that statue is positioned on the plaza of the United Nations, if you stand at a little distance from it, in the background you see this array of proud national flags of members of the United Nations. And you think of that almost magical sense of pride that each flag represents, just a few inches from its neighbor. Very often the flags touch, depending on the, on the current of the wind, they touch the flag of the next uh, flagpole. And so you see that as a metaphor for what nations can do, proudly independent and yet not afraid to reach out and to touch. And then you come back to the immediacy of that knotted gun in front of you. And you realize that the gun itself, the most obvious important symbol of violence, is in many societies so easy to acquire and in many societies so easy to fire, much as a metaphor 
for other much graver, much more lethal weapons. And that makes you think, how do you bring that reconciliation? How do you bring a community of independently proud nations which sometimes reach out to each other into a denial of what that knotted gun represents? And to my mind, the answer has to be in the two words I cherish most, United Nations. This is where it must begin, but this will not be where it ends. I wonder what you think is the role of education in helping to create a more nonviolent world and what contributions the UN can make to that extent. My immediate reaction would be that if you want a nonviolent world, you have to begin addressing the causes that spur violence in the first place. And many of those causes are really summed up in one word, that is denial. Denial of adequate livelihoods, denial of adequate health, denial of adequate rights. So if through the United Nations and through the global community of both civil society and of the academic community, which we are trying to nurture, if you're able to further the realization of individual and collective aspirations, then the need to exercise violence or the impetus to exercise violence will correspondingly diminish. So I think there is certainly a correlation there. But I do not believe that you can achieve nonviolence purely by telling individuals to disarm. That is one path. But then I think as, as Mahatma Gandhi taught us, nonviolence has to have a purpose. In Mahatma Gandhi's case, it began with the self-realization of the Indian nation, allowing Indians to determine their own destiny rather than a colonial power. But he was also clear in his own mind that that nonviolence, once it achieved that independence, would have to be the premise for a more secure, a more humane, and a more just and equal society. He did not live to realize that, but his successors have worked and continue to work for that. And I think there is a, I would hesitate to say lesson, that's an unfair word, but there, there is a message in that, that nonviolence is not a finite end in itself. And even if you were to achieve it, there is so much more that you need to be done. I'm working at the moment with an institution called the University for Peace. It's based in uh, Costa Rica, which as you know, and most of us know, took the most significant political decision for nonviolence that any country could have by disbanding its army. It does not have an army. And yet at the same time, this country, if you look at the indices for environmental sustainability, it's way ahead of the top of the league. So there is a correlation somewhere between choosing to literally and figuratively disarm and choosing to literally and figuratively advance the rights and hopes of your people. <laughs>